بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله this is lesson four in our tafsir of Surah Al-Kahf and we looked at how this chapter is divided into 11 segments according to Shaykh Abdul Rahman Habannaka Rahimahullah in his tafsir and we've been looking at the second segment for the past couple of classes and that is the segment containing the story of the Ashab Al-Kahf, the namesake of the chapter those young men of the cave and in our previous class we looked at their identity uh, what time period they likely came from what region uh, what was going on who were ruling those areas and then we talked about everything leading up to their escape from the city going into the cave so just to do a brief recap before we get into the story and look at it verse by verse we know that they fled the city during one of the festival days and their people were pagans and they go up to the mountain eventually they meet together and they meet the shepherd and they go up into the mountains until they find this cave and they basically decided to go into this cave to stay and hide and wait to see what they're going to do so there's no clear plan they don't have a, an objective in the sense that they're going from A to B and as a place they know they're going to settle in. They're not sure where they're going. So they go to this cave and they decide to go inside and basically wait. And they put the dog of the shepherd outside of the cave to stand guard in case any intruders come. And they're staying in this cave and what's going on with the shepherd? We mentioned that the shepherd who met them showed them where the cave is, lent the dog to them, and would serve them by going from time to time to the city. What was the purpose of him going to the city? It was to find out what's going on, to collect intel. What is the talk of the town about these young men? And eventually he came back and he said, I can no longer go back and forth for you because the emperor had asked about these youth and their whereabouts and he sent spies throughout the villages and towns to interrogate people and to go out and search for them. So the shepherd comes back one final time with supplies and he says to them essentially, I have bad news. I won't be able to go and get supplies anymore because the king's forces and his spies are getting close and everyone's watching and it was at this point when he gave them this quote-unquote bad news that they responded by saying, as Allah quotes in the Qur'an, إِذْ أَوَى الْفِتْيَةُ إِلَى الْكَهْفِ فَقَالُوا رَبَّنَا آتِنَا مِنْ لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً وَهَيِّئْ لَنَا مِنْ أَمْرِنَا رَشَدًا It was at this point when the youth took shelter in the cave, they said this dua, 
Rabbana atina min ladunka rahmatan wa hayyi' lana min amrina rashada. Our Lord, give us mercy from yourself and bless our affair with guidance or facilitate our matter with guidance. This is a good dua one can use in any difficult situation. If you have a difficult situation where things seem to be closing in on you from multiple directions, you can use this dua that is mentioned in the Quran with the intention of having facilitation and ease. They ask Allah Ta'ala for His mercy. The emperor is after them. The spies are looking for them. And they ask Allah Ta'ala for His Rahmah. And the Rahmah was given to them by them staying in the cave. Right? So after this dua, Allah mentions the answer of the dua. فَضَرَبْنَا عَلَىٰ آذَانِهِمْ فِي الْكَهْفِ سِنِينَ عَدَدًا Then we sealed their ears in the cave for a number of years. So seal here means to be covered. Why does Allah say that the ears were covered and not the eyes? Because sound is what makes you wake up more than light. If you think about the difference between an alarm clock and a light, you could be so tired that someone turns on the light, you don't even notice it. But if the alarm clock goes off, the sound wakes you up faster than light. So Allah Ta'ala covered their ears so they wouldn't hear anything. And this is the start of their long sleep. So soon after the cover of sleep has cast over them, the story continues. Now they're in the cave and they're asleep and the dog is standing outside guarding them. It wasn't long after they were asleep that the emperor's forces found the location of this cave and they came to the mouth of the cave and inside they saw these young men all sleeping. And the emperor had relayed a message. You know, the stories are not spelled out in exact detail. Who found them and when and how the message got back to the emperor. Was he with them? You know, we don't have those kinds of details. What we do have is the skeleton of the story. The forces of the emperor find the location of these young men See, they see them sleeping in the cave and there's a message from the emperor. We're assuming that they relayed this back to him. And he says, I have sentenced them to death. So leave them in the cave and place a large stone over the entrance so that when they wake up, they'll find themselves stuck and they'll die of hunger and thirst. So the idea here is they discover them inside of the cave sleeping. So instead of going inside and uh, rousing them awake and pulling them out, the emperor told the forces to instead place a large stone covering the mouth of the cave so that when they wake up, they're stuck and they die of hunger and thirst. And so what you see here is that the emperor, Decius, has sentenced them to death thinking that putting the stone over the mouth of the cave would be the cause of their death. But he sentences them to death and Allah sentences them to life and they live for even longer than the emperor. So we go back to the beginning of the story. 
where Allah Ta'ala asks the rhetorical question, have you thought that the companions of the cave, the Ashabul Kahf, and the Raqim are from our wondrous signs? Who remembers what the Raqim is? The inscription. So Ashabul Kahf is one name for these young men. The other name for the young men is Ashabul Raqim, those of the inscription. What is the inscription about? Some of the ulama say that the Raqim was actually the name of the dog. But the majority say that Raqim means inscription, and it refers to the inscription of the emperor that he ordered to be put on the front of the cave by the stone blocking it. So the tafasir mentioned that word spread about these young men in the cave, and there were some sympathizers in the, in the local area. So the emperor wanted to send a message to the people, a kind of deterrent, to teach people a lesson, to say, this is what happened to these people who defied the emperor. If you defy me, this is what will happen to you as well. So he ordered his forces to write an inscription to carve it in stone and place it at the mouth of the cave or the, the top of the cave where it says these people were killed because they refused to follow the religion of the emperor. And it says that the names of the young men were written. Uh, at any rate, the inscription refers to this inscription made by the emperor as a kind of warning to people about the consequences of disobeying him and going against his religion. So the emperor wanted to make them a lesson for other people. And Allah wanted to make them a lesson for other people. And there's a vast difference between the lesson of the emperor that he wanted people to get and what Allah wanted them to get. And we see that as the story unfolds. It's ultimately a lesson for everybody, but not the one that he intended. So after this, Allah Ta'ala mentions that they were put us, they were sleeping. Then Allah woke them up. Then Allah woke them up. We sent them forth. We brought them back to show which of the two factions was most precise in calculating their length of stay. So there's a lot of subtleties in this particular verse. So who are the two parties here? Allah Ta'ala says, then we woke them up, to know which of the two parties is more precise in calculating their length of stay. Who are the two parties here? In the tafasir, they mention different views. Some say it refers to the emperors who ruled over the region. So you have the emperor as one party and his people, and then the young men as the other party. One of the early mufassirs, Mujahid, said that these two parties refer to two groups among the youth themselves, because when they woke up, they differed over how long they were asleep. So one group is saying, we slept for this long. The other group is saying, no, we slept longer. So there were two groups among them differing over how long they were asleep. And another scholar, 
Al-Farra, he says that the two parties here refer to the believers from their time who differed over how long they slept. So there's different ways of looking at it. The most likely explanation is that it refers to the two groups among the young men themselves. They're differing over how long they were sleeping. One group said they slept for a whole day, and another group said they slept only part of a day. And that's mentioned in the, in the ayah itself. Now, if you go to this verse, and you look at the Arabic, you see that Allah Ta'ala is saying, ثُمَّ بَعَثْنَاهُمْ لِنَعْلَمَ أَيُّ الْحِزْبَيْنِ لِنَعْلَمَ If you translated that literally, it would be so that we could know, or so that we can know. Allah is referring to Himself in the plural for ta'zim, for uh, magnification. But what does it mean in these verses of the Qur'an where Allah says, لِيَعْلَمَ uh, or لِنَعْلَمَ So that we may know. Allah Ta'ala already knows. So how do you make sense of those verses? And the ulama mention that لِنَعْلَمَ used in this context means that we may make it known to others. لِنَعْلَمَ here means that we may make it known to other people. It's not something that is outside of the knowledge of Allah Ta'ala. We know that's an impossibility. So this is how we understand those verses. Allah woke them up, ba'athnahum, to make it known which of the two groups, which of the two factions was most precise in calculating their length of stay. Now, remember what we said in a couple of classes prior to this, that this chapter of the Qur'an is an answer to Quraysh. And it has a lot of details about matters that Quraysh were rejecting, beliefs. Now the Quraysh did not believe in the Day of Judgment. They did not believe in life after death. What do you call resurrection in Arabic? There's lots of words, aren't there? Right? right? So you have, of course, Qiyama, you have Nashr or Nushur. You also have uh, Ba'ath. Right? right, the, the ba'ath is to be re- returned or to be sent forth, to be brought back, to be raised up. So they slept for 300 plus years and then Allah woke them up. Notice the language. Allah Ta'ala says, ba'athnahum. So that's the same word in the, used in the Quran to refer to the resurrection, to life after death. So just as Allah Ta'ala brought them back to life after the twin brother of death, to sleep, Allah brings human beings back to life after death. So the word is the same word used for resurrection. So after mentioning this, Allah Ta'ala says, نَحْنُ نُقُصُّ عَلَيْكَ نَبَأَهُمْ بِالْحَقِّ إِنَّهُمْ فِتْيَةٌ آمَنُوا بِرَبِّهِمْ وَزِدْنَاهُمْ هُدَى we relate to you their story in truth. They were youth who believed in their Lord and we increased them in guidance. So Allah Ta'ala is now telling the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that we relate to you their story 
بِالْحَقِّ In truth. And this is because the story has been told by others. But there are many details added and there's lots of speculation about various aspects. So the only real authority for the story for us is the Prophet ﷺ, who is the wasita, the means who receive the accurate story from his creator. So Allah is saying, we relate the story to you in truth. So we receive it from him وسلم, who recites the ayah detailing the story without the speculations, without the superfluous details that were added by people who uh, embellished or in, tried to enhance the story. So we get the basic story from the, the words of Allah Ta'ala conveyed to us by Rasulullah Then Allah says, إِنَّهُمْ فِتْيَةً آمَنُوا بِرَبِّهِمْ وَزِدْنَاهُمْ هُدَىٰ So they were a youth, they were a fitya, who believed in their Lord, and we increased them in guidance. The idea is that if you have iman, those who have iman, Allah increases them. وَزِدْنَاهُمْ هُدَىٰ and this is a basic belief that we have as Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, the increase and decrease of Iman. And that's a very detailed issue in theology, in Aqeedah, because Iman can refer to a number of things. But the basic idea is if you have Iman, Allah increases you. Now, Iman can refer to your core conviction about the belief in Allah Ta'ala. Now, that core conviction never leaves you as long as you have Iman. So we don't mean that. Whereas if it decreases, you don't believe in Allah anymore. That's not what we refer to. What we mean here is yaqeen, certainty. Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah, he mentions in his commentary on Sahih Muslim and some of the hadith about this topic. And he gives the analogy of glasses, right? Uh, a few of you, a couple of you wear glasses. I wear glasses. Now, if you take your glasses off, you can still see, but you cannot see as sharply as you can when you have your glasses on. So the glasses are increasing the clarity of your vision. Taking them off does not mean you go blind. It doesn't mean you're either blind or you have full vision. The glasses simply enhance and strengthen the vision you already have. If you were completely blind, glasses wouldn't benefit you. So they have Iman, and Allah increased them, meaning increased them in their certainty, their yaqeen. And this indicates also for us that when you take proactive steps to seek guidance and to embrace guidance, Allah will increase you in guidance. Allah will give you more. After this, Allah Ta'ala says, and you'll notice here that we don't hear the details of the story who went where and when and how and the name of the dog and uh, all of these details. Those details are found in extra scriptural sources. Allah Ta'ala says, وَرَبَطْنَا عَلَىٰ قُلُوبِهِمْ إِذْ قَامُوا فَقَالُوا رَبُّنَا رَبُّ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَنْ نَدْعُوَ مِنْ دُونِهِ إِلَهَا لَقَدَ قُلْنَا إِذَا شَطَطًا 
and we strengthened their hearts. When they stood up and said, Our Lord is the Lord of the heavens and the earth, we will not call on any God besides Him. For then we would have spoken an immense wrong. So in the Arabic we see Allah says, وَرَبَطَنَا عَلَىٰ قُلُوبِهِمْ So رَبْط is to tie or to bind. When you, when you tie or bind something, you're strengthening it. You're making it firmer and you're giving it support. So the idea here is the heart is something that can become weak. It can flutter and scatter. It needs to be strengthened and tied. So this is what Allah Ta'ala is saying, that Allah made the heart of these young men firm and they in the firmness of Iman, in the increase in guidance Allah gave them, qamu, they stood up. Waqalu, they stood up. Faqalu, uh, and they said, Our Lord is the Lord of the heavens and the earth, and we will not worship anyone besides Him. What is the nature of this standing? When did that standing happen? So Allah says that He bound their hearts, He strengthened the hearts when they stood up and said. Now, the scholars of tafsir differ about this. Some of them say that this is referring to when they stood up at the tree, where they all met together. They didn't know each other, but they all assembled at this tree. Allah inspired them to go in that direction, and they all ended up at this one tree. And when they were all assembled there, eventually they all just stood up and began to speak about why they're there. And they shared with each other what brought them there. So some say that this standing is referring to them standing by the tree and sharing with the others why they were there. Saying, basically, I am a mu'min. I believe in Allah alone. I don't worship anything else besides Him. And I will not worship anything besides Him. That's a great wrong. So they're sharing with each other their iman. Some of the ulama of tafsir say no. They say that the standing refers to the young men individually standing in the presence of the emperor and saying that I believe in Allah alone and I will not worship what you worship. So this speaks to them having an audience before the emperor when they received the initial threat before they left the city. And some say that this is when they stood up after waking up, but that's far-fetched because we already know why they were there in the first place. It had to do with what they said. So at the tree or in the presence of the emperor, they stood up and they said, Our Lord is the Lord of the heavens and the earth and we will not worship anything besides him. If we were to do that or to utter that, it would be a great outrage, a great wrong. And then Allah Ta'ala says, continuing the quote, mentioning what these young men are saying, So continuing to quote the young men, Allah mentions them saying, these people, our people, have taken to themselves gods other than Him. Why do they not bring a clear proof concerning them? Who then does greater wrong 
than he who invents lies and attributes them to God. So there's, a, there's an interesting subtlety here. First, we see that the people of Huda, the people of guidance, Allah describes them as people who received increase in guidance. The people of Huda, they do worry about their own people. This religion is a deen of concern for other people. You don't hide your religion. You bring it to people, to everyone around you. No one is disqualified from hearing the message of La ilaha illallah. It is for everyone. And the question we, we, we have here when looking at this verse is, where were they when they said this? If they, because we have two possibilities here. When they stood up and they said what they said, where were they when they stood up? From the tafsir, we see they're either at the tree when they all met together, or they're saying this when they're individually in the presence of the emperor. So they're either all saying it collectively to each other, or each of them is saying basically the same thing when they're in the presence of the emperor. So either way, there's a question. Allah quotes them as saying, هَأُولَاءِ قَوْمُنَا These are our people who have taken uh, to themselves gods besides Allah. If they said this at the tree, they were very far away from their people. They were out in the countryside by this tree, away from their people. Why, if that's the case, would they say هَأُولَاءِ? Because هَأُولَاءِ in Arabic, these, that's for qareeb, that's for someone close, a group of people close to you. We have the ism ishara in Arabic, right? You say, هَذَا for something close. If it's far away, what do you say? You say, ذَلِكَ. If it's a group of people that are close, you say, هَأُولَاءِ. These. If it's a group of people far away, what do you say? Ula'ika. So if they're at the tree, they are far away. Why aren't they saying ula'ika qawmuna? Those are our people who worship false gods. Why are they saying these are our people if they're at the tree far away from the people? It's an interesting question because if they're at the tree, they're far away. If they are in the presence of the emperor, it could perhaps make a little more sense. Maybe there's an audience there. Maybe there's people around and they're saying, these, our people, are worshiping false gods. But most of the ulama of tafsir refer the statement to them being at the tree saying this. So why would they say ha'ula'i? It seems to be, and Allah knows best, that they're saying ha'ula'i because they see themselves as close to their people and they want good for their people. Because in Arabic, it's not an ironclad rule that you can only use ha'ula'i for people who are spatially close to you. Just like you don't have to say dhalika for someone far away. It's very relative, right? I could look at this key or these keys and I would say uh, I would say hada for example one key hada miftah is close to me it's in my hand 
I can put it on the table and say, Hada miftah. I can put it at the corner of the table and say, Thadika miftah. Because it's relatively far from me. But it's still close. I could still say, Hada. I could put it at the end of the room and say, Hada. Or I could say, Thadika. So closeness and distance is really relative. Same thing for Ha'ulai and Ula'ik. And it, the Arabic language is rich like that, and it's relative. You see in Surah Baqarah something of the opposite of this. This is the Quran. It is the Kitab. And Allah says, That is the book. Why? It's because sometimes when you say, even for something close, it is for ta'zim, it's for reverence and honor. But here it's, it's different. And it seems like they're saying ha'ulai because they are close to their people, or they see themselves as close to their people and want good for them. And Allah knows best. So there's a subtlety there. And then after quoting these young men and what they said, either at the tree or either uh, in the presence of the emperor, Allah says, وَإِذِ اعْتَزَلْتُمُوهُمْ وَمَا يَعْبُدُونَ إِلَّا اللَّهَ فَأُوُوا إِلَى الْكَهْفِ يَنْشُرْ لَكُمْ رَبُّكُمْ مِنْ رَحْمَتِهِ وَيُهَيِّئْ لَكُمْ مِنْ أَمْرِكُمْ مِرْفَقًا So now that you have withdrawn from them and from what they worship besides Allah, take shelter in the cave and your Lord will expand His mercy for you and will set your affair towards ease. So they abandon their people, they leave the city, they leave what they're worshipping besides Allah, and they go to the cave. It's, Allah Ta'ala is addressing them here with a command. So this indicates inspiration, ilham. They receive some kind of inspiration to leave the city and to go to this area, and they all happen to meet at the tree. They didn't know each other before that. Now these young men are not anbiya, they're not prophets. So what is this that they're receiving from Allah Ta'ala? Allah says in this verse, الْكَهْفِ Allah is addressing them with a command to go seek shelter in the cave. So how are they receiving that command? It's not wahi, it's not revelation like what the prophets receive. It is ilham, it is inspiration. And this is something that we affirm as a possibility. Allah can inspire people with things in their heart. Uh, and there's numerous proofs for this in the ahadith of the Prophet So they're inspired to go and they're told to take shelter in the cave. So they get to the tree, they're inspired to go to a cave, but they don't know where the cave is. They just go to the area they're inspired to go to. It is the shepherd who shows them the cave that they were inspired to seek out. But look at the verse. Allah Ta'ala says, Go to the cave and take shelter. Yanshur lakum. Allah will, your Lord will expand for you His mercy. Now a cave is usually tight and narrow. When you go inside of a cave, it's not the most comfortable place to be. They have small entrances and closed environments, yet here Allah tells them to go to the cave to seek refuge, and then He says, Yanshur lakum. He will spread for you and expand for you His mercy. So 
by the rahm of Allah, that thing, the cave, which is normally tight and uncomfortable, is made to seem expansive and comfortable. So the, the greater lesson here is sometimes you can be put in tight situations, but if Allah gives you His rahmah, there's an expansion in that, right? How many times has a person seemingly had it all and they have expansiveness in dunya, but they have constriction in their heart? And how many times have they had constriction in their dunya, but Allah gives them expansion in their heart? So this is a case of constriction in the worldly sense, because the cave is small, relatively speaking, and usually it's uncomfortable, but Allah made it expansive to them. So this cave, this tight cave, that is filled with iman, is better than the palace of the qiyanus, which is expansive, but filled with kufr. So Allah says that it was expanded for them. And then another miracle happened. Allah says, وَتَرَى الشَّمْسَ إِذَا طَلَعَتْ تَزَاوَرُ عَنْ كَهْفِهِمْ ذَاتَ الْيَمِينِ وَإِذَا غَرَبَتْ تَقْرِضُهُمْ ذَاتَ الشِّمَالِ وَهُمْ فِي فَجْوَةٍ مِّنْ You would have seen the sun when it rose veering away from their cave towards the right. And when it sets, moving away from them to the left as they lay in the midst of the cave. This is one of Allah's signs. He whom Allah guides is truly guided, but he whom He misguides, for him you will find no directing friend. So picture this. The cave has an opening, a mouth. And Allah Ta'ala is saying that when the sun rose, it was veering away from the cave towards the right. And when it sets, it's moving away from them to the left. So what this means is they are receiving sunlight, but not directly. Think about this. If you're inside of a cave for 300 plus years, if you don't get sunlight, it's going to be a huge problem because your body needs the sun, you need vitamin D. But if the sun is shining directly into the cave on you as you're sleeping, that can also be harmful. So Allah Ta'ala is mentioning that the cave is receiving sun, but not directly onto them. This means that the cave is probably, the mouth is probably facing the north. Because if it's facing the north, and the sun is rising from the east, is getting indirect sunlight going into the cave, but not on them. And as it's setting in the west, it's coming again. So they're getting access to sunlight, but without it being directly on them. So they're getting some sun in the morning and some in the evening. Now this is how we could read the verse. وَهُمْ فِي فَجْوَةٍ مِنْهُ could mean that there's a space. Because the question inevitably arises. If they're also called Ashab al-Raqim, the people of the inscription, because the stone was placed on the mouth of the cave where they can't get out, how is sunlight getting in? Right? That's the question, right? But Allah answers that by saying, وَهُمْ فِي فَجْوَةٍ مِنْهُ By saying that there was basically a space where sunlight and air could get inside. 
So wahum fi fajwatin minhu basically explains how a stone could be put there, yet they still receive light. So it's rays of light and oxygen, air, getting inside. So that's one way of looking at it. The sun is uh, rising from the east, setting in the west, and the mouth of the cave is toward the north. They're getting access to sunlight through these cracks and crevices and holes and oxygen. So they're getting what they need, and it's not even hitting them directly. Uh, another interpretation mentioned by some of the ulama is that the cave, the mouth of the cave wasn't actually facing the north, but by the power of Allah Ta'ala, the sun was shining into the cave to their right and to their left and not directly on them. Allah, if Allah wills for them to be in direct sunlight, but it not hit them, but indirectly, that's possible. But at the end of the day, we don't know those details. We just know that they were inside of the cave receiving sunlight, but not directly on them. It was going to the right and to the left and not taking them, hitting them directly. So Allah Ta'ala mentions, uh, after mentioning this miracle, ذَلِكَ مِنْ آيَاتِ That is from the signs of Allah. مَنْ يَهْدِ اللَّهُ فَهُوَ الْمُهْتَدِي وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْ فَلَنْ تَجِدَ لَهُ وَلِيًّا مُرْشِدًا Whomsoever Allah guides, he is rightly guided. And whomsoever is misled, or he misled, then you will not find for that person a guiding friend. So Allah guided them in the city. Allah guided them to this tree. Allah guided them to the mouth of the cave by means of the shepherd coming to them and taking them there. And Allah guided the sun in such a way that they are being provided with what they need of the sunlight and the air. So the guidance takes on many forms. Now Allah Ta'ala is mentioning their state while sleeping. He says, وَتَحْسَبُهُمْ أَيْقَاظًا وَهُمْ رُقُودٌ وَنُقَلِّبُهُمْ ذَاتَ الْيَمِينِ وَذَاتَ الشِّمَالِ وَكَلْبُهُمْ بَاسِطٌ ذِرَاعِيهِ بِالْوَصِيدٌ لو اطلعت عليهم لوليت منهم فرارا ولملئت منهم رعبا You would think them awake although they were asleep and we turn them over to the right and to the left with their dog stretching its paws across the threshold Had you looked at them you would have turned away from them in flight and been filled with fear of them this is where we get to some interesting tafsir because this is a part of the miracle of the Ashab al-Kaf. It's not just the miracle of them sleeping for so long, it's also in how they were maintained in that 300 plus years. So in this verse Allah is saying that you would think that they're awake, meaning they would appear awake to any outside onlooker. If they were able to look inside of the cracks and crevices and peer inside of the cave, they would appear awake. So some of the scholars of Tafsir say, they're sleeping for all of this time, yet anyone who would look inside would see their eyes open. So they're sleeping with their eyes open, like this. So anyone who sees them thinks, oh my God, they're awake? This is one understanding. And Allah says, 
and we turn them over to the right and to the left. Why would they need to be turned to the right and to the left? Circulation, right? If you stay reclining on, on the bed for too long in one position, it becomes a big problem, bed sores and the like. So they're sleeping for 300 plus years. They need access to sunlight. Allah to have, could have kept them in complete darkness and they would have survived if he wanted them to survive. They could have slept without moving at all, eyes open or closed, and Allah would have preserved them. It's all possible. But Allah willed that they receive sunlight indirectly. And also Allah willed that they turn right to left. And there's two ways you could look at that. And they're not mutually contradictory. Uh, one way is to say that the onlookers, anybody who would come to the cave could look inside, see their eyes are open, and see that they're also moving around. So are they sleeping or are they not? You can't tell. They're not responding to anyone. There's no shouting that makes them wake up. But they're turned because their ears are covered. So they're turning to the right and to the left, and they appear awake because of the movement and the eyes open. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that this is a miracle. This is kharqul ada. It is a break from the empirical norms that we've talked about in the aqidah class. Because what's the empirical norm? The empirical norm is that when you go to sleep, you close your eyes. The empirical norm is that you sleep a certain amount of time and then you wake up. The empirical norm is that uh, you hear things, if someone's shouting, that wakes you up. But Allah seals their ears. Uh, and so certain norms are maintained and certain norms are broken. So what norms are maintained? The need for vitamin D. That norm is maintained. The need for turning from side to side. That norm is also maintained. Other norms are broken. The length of sleep, sleeping with the eyes open, not hearing people if they were to shout into the cave, being in that state, uh, not eating or drinking for all of this time. So more norms are broken than unbroken. But even still, we see in the miracle itself, there are certain norms that are maintained, right? For example, you have lots of narrations where Allah Ta'ala gave barakah to the food and drink of the Prophet You have the hadith of Abu Hurairah anhu, where the pitcher of milk is brought and everyone's hungry and the Prophet passes it around and everyone's drinking to their fill. And it doesn't deplete, it remains to the until it goes all the way around the room and it ends and there's still milk left. That's a miracle, that's a break from the norm. What's the norm in this situation? Well, the norm is that if you have a certain quantity of milk or food, once it's been consumed, it's, it's gone, it's, it's, it's over, you have to get more. But this was remaining and it didn't get uh, replenished from an outside source, it continued like this. But think about it, they were hungry. Couldn't Allah have taken away their hunger altogether? Yeah. He could have. 
where they live their life without any hunger or thirst. That's happened to some. Um Ayman radiallahu anha. Um Ayman, after she drank from the pitcher that came from the heavens during the hijrah, she was never thirsty again. Right? So Allah could, could break those norms, but you see a lot of miracles occurring within actual empirical norms. So they're still hungry, they're still thirsty, but the miracle is the increase of this thing. So there's breaking of norms coinciding with other norms that aren't broken. Right? That's how we understand a lot of these miracles where Allah gives barakah and increase. So that's something you see here too. Now, there's a narration from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu. He says, they turned to the right and to the left because if they hadn't, the earth would have consumed their bodies. And some of the tafsir works mention that they turned once every day to the right and the left. Uh, some narrations say that they turn once a year on the day of Ashura. Others say once every nine years. These are all speculations just mentioned in the books of tafsir. There's no actual hadith for this or that. It's just shay'un yuqal, is something said. After mentioning the miracle of them turning to the right and to the left and being visible to people who would see them from the outside and think they're awake, Allah then mentions their dog. And it is a sufficient honor for dogs that Allah has mentioned the dog in the Qur'an. Obviously as Muslims there's a, there's a fiqh connected to how we relate to dogs in terms of ownership and keeping them and in terms of purification or filth. And there's some differences of opinion about that. But it doesn't mean the dog is an inherently filthy, disgusting, bad animal. We don't look at dogs that way. And that's not the norm for Muslims uh, in the pre-modern period. The norm was for people to have guard dogs and hunting dogs. Uh, the norm was to honor dogs uh, and treat them well. It wasn't the norm to have dogs in our homes, to have uh, doggy bags and gourmet dog food and gourmet doggy sparkling water and doggy hotels like you have here. Uh, it was a, a natural relationship of an animal that is loyal, right? So Allah mentions the dog in this chapter and some ulama say it is enough as an honor for the dog that Allah has mentioned the dog of the Ashab al-Kahf in the Qur'an. So the verse says that the dog is sitting where? Bil wasid, right? So the wasid is like the threshold or the entrance to the cave. Why is the dog sitting outside of the cave at the entrance with its arms outstretched? There's two reasons. Number one, it's performing this role as a guard dog. It would bark and scare away anyone approaching. Number two, why isn't it inside the cave? Because angels do not enter the abodes that have dogs inside of them. So you keep it outside of the house. So this was their house, essentially. So they, the dog was outside of this space. Now Allah Ta'ala says, وَكَلْبُهُمْ بَاسِطٌ ذِرَعَيْهِ بِالْوَصِيدِ 
uh, it was basilt. Basilt here means its arms were outstretched. But some have taken from this verse an indication that the dog had a name, and they suggest that the name of the dog was also basilt. And Allah knows best what the name of the dog is. Uh, some of the tafsir works go into a lot of detail about these things. And they're not needed. It's just out of curiosity. What was the name of the dog? What could it have been named? What color was the dog? Right? That's even discussed in some tafsir works. And the tafsir works that do mention the color of the dog mention that it was most likely yellow. So we don't know what kind of dog this was. Could that have been a, uh, a golden retriever? Who knows? Uh, but they say the reason why it was yellow is because uh, yellow is the color of the, of, the, of, uh, of the person or the animal that is uh, it's the color of love. They say the color of love because when they are uh, they worry about their beloved or they feel separated from their beloved, uh, it, it affects them and they become almost jaundiced out of the stress. So this is what they say, you know. And there's no authority to any of that. It's just, again, shay'un yuqal, something they say. So he was basilt uh, with his arms outstretched. His name could have been basilt. And his state was undoubtedly basilt, because basilt in Arabic can mean uh, someone who is happy. So the dog was happy to be in the company of these young men. Now Allah Ta'ala says that if you were to see them in this state, you would think they're sleeping. Uh, you would think they're awake, sorry. And they, we turn them to their right and to their left, and the dog is outside on the threshold. And if you were to see them, you would have been filled with fear. Ru'ab. Ru'ab means fear or terror. You would have been filled with terror if you saw them. So if you saw them, you'd think they're awake, and you would also be filled with fear and terror. Why? The ulama mentioned different opinions about that. Some say it is because their hair and fingernails continue to grow all this time. How would someone look if their hair continued to grow for 300 years or their fingernails? You see these men inside the cave, their hair is God knows how long. The nails are who knows how long. The person goes inside and peeks. Their eyes are open and they have these long nails and long hair. They will be filled with fear and terror. This is how some have interpreted it. Other mufassirs, they leave it to Allah. They say, well, we don't know, right? Others say that this is not speaking about how they might have looked. Rather, this is another miracle that anyone who would get up close to the cave was to stop them from trying to remove the stones and to pull them out. They say that this means that if you got to the mouth of the cave or you were to look inside the crevices and see them, they would appear awake, they would be moving, and also... Allah would cast fear into the hearts of the one looking at them, which would prevent them from trying to do anything to disturb them in their sleep. And this is a very strong interpretation because it doesn't mean we're speculating about the appearance of the young men in the cave. It's just a state that Allah would cast into people's hearts or it would be something they would experience that would drive them away from the cave 
stopping them from going any further, uh, preventing them from going into the cave, moving the stones, and so on. Now, in the historical record, and this is mentioned in some of the tafsir works, there is a narration from Sayyidina Muawiyah radiallahu anhu, who during his rule, it's because he was ruling in Sham, and so over this general area, it was mentioned that some of the people discovered what they thought was the cave of the Ashab al-Kahf during his reign. And he sent some of his soldiers to go investigate. They went to the cave that they suspected to be the cave of these young men. And when they got to the cave and looked inside, a scorching hot wind blew from inside of the cave, causing them to run away. So Allah knows best about this narration. It's mentioned in the books of Tafsir. If it's true, it would mean that even after they woke up and left the cave, right, even after there is that experience of driving people away, this, in this case, a hot scorching wind. And Allah Ta'ala knows best. So after mentioning this miracle and how they were maintained in the cave, Allah then mentions how they were awakened. And Allah uses the same verb mentioned earlier, ba'athnahum, which is a reminder about belief in resurrection. So this is also a subtle uh, refutation against the beliefs of Quraysh who deny the resurrection. Allah Ta'ala says, وَكَذَٰلِكَ بَعِثْنَاهُمْ لِيَتَسَاءَلُوا بَيْنَهُمْ قَالَ قَائِلٌ مِّنْهُمْ كَمْ لَبِثْتُمْ قَالُوا لَبِثْنَا يَوْمًا أَوْ بَعْضَ يَوْمٍ قَالُوا رَبُّكُمْ أَعْلَمُ بِمَا لَبِثْتُمْ فَبَعَثُوا أَحَدَكُمْ بِوَرَقِكُمْ هَذِهِ إِلَى الْمَدِينَةِ فَلْيَنْظُرْ أَيُّهَا أَزْكَى طَعَامًا فَلْيَأْتِكُمْ بِرِزْقٍ مِّنْهُ وَلْيَتَلَطَّفْ وَلَا يُشْعِرَنَّ بِكُمْ أَحَدًا Even so, we awaken them so that they may ask one another. A speaker among them said, How long have you stayed? They said, we have stayed a day or part of a day. They said, your Lord knows best how long you've stayed. Send one of you to the city with this money of yours and let him see which food is most suitable and let him bring you some provision thereof and let him be gentle and let no one become aware of you. So the hadith or the athar mentioned in the tafsir that they entered the cave in the morning and that they woke up and it was asr time. So this would be what? Part of a day, right? So part of a day. So they wake up at this time, at asr time, and they start to ask each other, how long did you remain? One said, we remained for a day. Another said, a part of a day. And then they said, Allah knows best how long we stayed asleep. But waking up, unsure of how long they were asleep, one thing they were sure of is that they were very, very hungry. So again, there's this miracle of them being sustained alive for 300 years without food. Yet as soon as they're awakened by Allah Ta'ala, 
the world of empirical norms remains and they feel hungry. How hungry would you feel if you were asleep that long? So they're very hungry, unsure of how long they were sleeping, and they decided that the number one priority after waking up is to get some food. So one of them still had some money. And this money, what kind of money was it? It was coins, right? Now, if you know ancient history, the coins of that time were always minted to certify that they're actual silver or gold coins. What would be stamped on these coins? The emperor. You can look, you can even find these, there's pictures of them, you can find. The face of the emperor and the name would be stamped on these minted coins. And this is how you distinguish counterfeit currency from real currency. They still have money and one of them who has the money is told to go to the city, get some food, find the azka, the purest food, and be very careful, be very subtle in how you go into the city. You don't want to get caught. So priority number one for them was to get food. And it wasn't just any food. They said, azka ta'aman, the purest food. And this is a lesson that even in this state of hunger, they're looking for what is halal, to be careful. And they say, take this money of yours, this coinage, and go and find this pure food and be very careful. Be very subtle in how you enter the city because if you get caught, it will be a huge problem. Allah says, quoting them, إِنَّهُمْ إِنْ يَظْهَرُوا عَلَيْكُمْ يَرْجُمُوكُمْ أَوْ يُعِيدُوكُمْ فِي مِلَّتِهِمْ وَلَنْ تُفْلِحُوا إِذَنْ أَبَدًا If they discover you, they will stone you or force you back into their religion then you will never be saved. Now there's a question here. We know in Islam that if someone is pressured to utter kufr at the threat of death or torture, they are allowed to say the word of kufr provided they hate it in their heart. This is called ikra. Allah mentions this in the Quran in, in the ayat in connection with the story of Ammar bin Yasir radiallahu anhu. إِلَّا مَنْ أُكْرِهَا وَقَلْبُهُ مُطْمَئِنٌ بِالْإِيمَانِ Except for the one who is uh, under compulsion while their heart is content with iman. So why does Allah Ta'ala say, quoting them, they will force you back into their religion, then you will never be saved? What if they were forced and they didn't really believe it? Some of the ulama say that, the pressure would have been so much that they wouldn't have been able to withstand it. And Allah knew their reality. Uh, that's the likely interpretation. So this is the part of the story where they end up getting discovered. They stay asleep 300 years plus. They wake up. They're very hungry. The one who has some coin is told to go back to the city very carefully to get some pure food and bring it back to them. But to be very careful lest they're discovered. And so Allah Ta'ala then mentions the discovery, how this young man gets caught. He says, Allah 
فقال ابنوا عليهم بنيانا ربهم أعلم بهم قال الذين غلبوا على أمرهم لنتخذن عليهم مسجدا So it was that we caused them to be discovered that they would know that the promise of Allah is true and that of the hour there is no doubt and they were disputing their case among themselves they said build over them a building their Lord knows best about them those who prevailed over their case said we will set up over them a place of worship so we're, we're coming to the end of the story yes Right. It's not in the cave. Right. And then you're talking about... Oh, the, 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 dog, the dog dies. I know, the dog dies. Yeah. But then the dog being able to stretch its yeah. paws into the cave. Right. And then you're talking about... Now they're talking about the, the, the young companions leaving. Being sent out. How do they get out? How do they get out? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's some narrations which mention that through natural deterioration over time, okay. it was, there was an opening okay. allowing them to get out. And this is 300 and something years have, have elapsed. And, and this is where we get to the story of the inscription and what happens with them. I also have a question. Yeah. The dog, you're saying it's the dog doesn't seem to play a major role except that he accompanied them and sat outside and then they went to sleep but it was so loyal that it just remained there until it died think about that that's loyalty because let's face it if you have a dog and you're stuck in the house they may stay outside and guard the gate for 20 minutes or an hour they're eventually going to roam off and if you never come out of the house they need to get food they need to run some they're going to go they're not coming back but this dog remained until it died Right? That's loyalty. There are stories of dogs coming and remaining at people's graves. There are stories of dogs uh, going and sitting at people's grave sites yeah. Yeah, of their owners. You're right. So we're now 300 slash 309 years after the emperor, Decius Dacianus, was long gone. He died. So in the tafsir works, they mentioned that 300 years later, the people in the region still held on to certain aspects of their pagan beliefs. By this time, it's Christianity. But in this area, people still held on to certain aspects of pagan beliefs. One of them being the denial uh, of life after death. So it is mentioned that these people uh, did not believe in an afterlife. They didn't have conviction that after they die, they're brought back to life. And the tafsir works mentioned that 300 plus years later, the emperor of the time was actually a believer, a mu'min, from the early Christian community. And as a believer, he of course believes in the last day. 
but he's dealing with his people who have these pagan ideas still entrenched within them and many of whom still disbelieve or doubt in the day of judgment. So the narrations mention that this emperor was making dua that Allah would guide his people to belief in the last day. So these young men, they wake up. One of them is sent to the city with the coins to go buy some food. The mouth of the cave had opened up enough for them to get out. He crawls out. He goes to the town. He goes into one of the markets and he's looking for food. He finds the food and he's going to purchase it. You see the problem here? He's pulling out the coins from 300 years ago. It has the face of Decius, not the face of the current emperor. The shopkeeper sees this money. Think about it, it just in our day. Say you're, you're selling something for $20. Who is on the $20 bill? Anyone know? It's Andrew Jackson, isn't it? Yeah. Who's on the $100 bill? Benjamin Franklin, right? Right. Okay, we'll go to the 100 Benjamin Franklin's on the $100 bill. You sell something for $100, and the person gives you a $100 bill, but instead of you seeing Benjamin Franklin, you see, I don't know, just anybody. <laughs> you see, just name... You see Trump, okay? You see Biden, right? You, you, see, you see Kamala Harris or something, right? What are, you, what are you going to think when you see that? It's counterfeit. It's fake. Because you know that a $100 bill has Benjamin Franklin on it. He sees this coin with Decius on it. He thinks it's counterfeit. So he calls out to the shorta, to the police in the marketplace. This guy's selling, he, he has counterfeit coin, apprehend him. So they detain this young man. He's now caught. The rest of the young men are in the cave waiting for the food. He's caught. So he's apprehended. He's telling his story. And it's unbelievable. So they bring him to the emperor himself. He tells the story. He says, we were in the cave. We fell asleep woke up, it seemed like it was a day or part of a day, and I'm just here to buy food. Now, the emperor knows the story of the young men of the cave. There's the inscription. It's well known. So the emperor decides to go check this out for himself. He goes with some of his forces, and they head to the cave, and they find the rest of the young men as fresh as they were in their youth 300 years prior. And after this, they came out of the cave collectively, were brought to the town, and the emperor presented them to the people, showing them that these young men were in the cave that long, and look, they're alive right now. How can you doubt the power of Allah in bringing you back to life after death? And seeing this and verifying this as a reality, the people came to have iman in the last day in resurrection, life after death. So it was an answer to the dua of that emperor 300 uh, plus years later. So this is the gist of the story. So in this 
in these set of verses, Allah mentions the conclusion to the story. وَكَذَٰلِكَ أَعْثَرْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ لِيَعْلَمُوا أَنَّ وَعْدَ اللَّهِ حَقٍّ وَأَنَّ السَّاعَةَ لَا رَيْبَ فِيهَا So it was that we caused them to be discovered that they would know that the promise of Allah is true and that there is no doubt about the sa'ah, the final hour, resurrection. إِذْ يَتَنَازَعُونَ بَيْنَهُمْ أَمْرَهُمْ as they were disputing their case among themselves, They said, build over them a building. So we're at the end of the story, and Allah mentions that they were disputing. This munaza'ah is a dispute or an argument between people. What were they disputing about? There are different opinions about that. Some of the scholars say they were disputing about the condition of the young men. During all this time, were they sleeping or were they dead and brought back to life? So some were arguing that they were sleeping the whole time. Others were arguing that no, they died and were brought back to life. It was unclear to them. Another opinion says that they were disputing uh, about whether they should seal the cave or build a structure over it to commemorate the incident. And Another view is that the disbelievers among the people said, let us build something to commemorate them. And that the believers among them said, let us build a place of worship at this spot. So this is one dispute, right? What should be the purpose of the structure that they wanted to build there to commemorate or to mark the place? Some disputed about how long they remained and others disputed about their names and how many they were. So you see in the Qur'an, there is an ambiguity. They were disputing about their affair, their matter. Allah doesn't say what the affair was, right? The Qur'an is not a, hist a history book that is recounting all of the finer details. It doesn't specify. But they were disputing about them. So it could be how long they were there in the cave, how many they were, what their names were, whether they were alive or asleep, I mean alive and asleep or dead and brought back to life. Anyhow, those who prevailed, Allah mentions this, those who prevailed, and this is referring to the believing emperor, they decided to build a masjid which literally means a place of prayer and prostration, at the site of the cave. And the purpose of that was tabarruk, to seek blessings from the site of this great miracle of Allah Ta'ala, as well as blessings from the relics of these pious young men. So a site was built there to commemorate the space. It was meant to, for tabarruk, and tabarruk is to seek barakah from um, places, relics, or people, right? And tabarruk can be sought from individuals, from their relics, or certain sacred sites. That was the intention, to build a masjid there. It is after this story is told, Allah mentions some details about the disputes. Different opinions people had about the 
the exact number of young men and how long they've remained and so on. And so we read Allah Ta'ala saying, سَيَقُولُونَ ثَلَاثَةٌ رَابِعُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ وَيَقُولُونَ خَمْسَةٌ سَادِسُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ رَجَمًا بِالْغَيْبِ وَيَقُولُونَ سَبْعَةٌ وَثَامِنُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ قُلْ رَبِّي أَعْلَمُ بِعِدَّتِهِمْ مَا يَعْلَمُهُمْ إِلَّا قَلِيلٌ فَلَا تُمَارِ فِيهِمْ إِلَّا مِرَاءً ظَاهِرًا وَلَا تَسْتَفْتِ فِيهِمْ مِنْهُمْ أَحَدًا They will say three, and their fourth being their dog. And they will say five, and their sixth being their dog. رَجَمًا بِالْغَيْبِ Guessing at the unknown. Guess, guessing at what is relatively unseen. غَيْب for them. Say, and they will say seven, and their eighth being their dog. Say, my Lord knows best their number. None knows them except a few. So do not argue concerning them except with an obvious argument, and do not consult any of them about them. So those who are disputing will say different things about the exact number of the young men in the cave. What is the soundest few? How many were they? Seven. Seven. And the eighth was the dog. Right? Now, you can see the answer to the question given in this very verse. Because if you look at the verse, Allah mentions one group saying three, and their fourth was the dog. Another group says five, and the sixth was the dog. Allah responds to those two claims by mentioning Rajman bil ghaib, guessing at the unknown. Right after that, Allah says, and they will say, Sabaatun wathaminuhum kalbuhum. Seven and the eighth being their dog. Allah does not say anything about that statement being wrong. He just says, Qul, my, say, my Lord knows best about their number. So that is actually the sounder view. So, Linguistically, there's a difference because وَيَقُولُونَ If you go to the Arabic, look at the Arabic. سَيَقُولُونَ ثَلَاثَةٌ رَابِعُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ Right? They'll say three, the fourth of them being their dog. وَيَقُولُونَ خَمْسَةٌ سَادِسُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ And some say five, the sixth of them being their dog. رَجْمًا بِالْغَيْبُ وَيَقُولُونَ سَبْعَةٌ وَثَامِنُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ You see the difference there? If you, there's three sets of numbers. The first says, ثَلَاثَةٌ رَابِعُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ So three, the fourth of them being the dog. Second one says, خَمْسَةٌ سَادِسُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ Five, the sixth of them being their dog. وَيَقُولُونَ سَبْعَةٌ wa. There's a, now there's a wow that, that wasn't in the previous phrases. That wow has to impart additional information that's not in the previous phrases. Why is the wow here and not in the others? Why doesn't it say, ثَلَاثَةٌ وَرَابِعُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ Or, خَمْسَةٌ وَسَادِسُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ Why is it only here that Allah says, سَبْعَةٌ وَثَامِنُهُمْ كَلْبُهُمْ the ulama say that this is because it is additional information and it has to impart something that's not in the previous phrases.
So this is an indication that that is the exact number. It was seven, and the eighth of them was the dog. Guessing at the unknown is mentioned regarding the first two. It's not mentioned about seven with the eighth being the dog. So that is guessing for the first two, not for the third one. And lastly, you look at the verse, Allah Ta'ala says right after this, Say, my Lord knows best their number. None knows them except qalil, a few. Ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhuma, tarjumal al-Qur'an, the interpreter of the Qur'an, he says, I am from those qalil. And they were seven and the eighth was their dog. Right? So that's an authoritative tafsir coming from Ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhuma. So after this, the story is told in full. Allah Ta'ala then says, addressing the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, وَلَا تَقُولَنَّ لِشَيْءٍ إِنِّي فَاعِلٌ ذَلِكَ غَدَى إِلَّا أَنْ يَشَاءَ اللَّهُ وَاذْكُرْ رَبَّكَ إِذَا نَسِيتَ وَقُلْ عَسَىٰ أَنْ يَهْدِيَنِ رَبِّي لِأَقْرَبَ مِنْ هَذَا رَشَدًا And never say about anything, I'll do that tomorrow, without saying, inshaAllah. إِلَّا أَنْ يَشَاءَ اللَّهُ And if God wills. And remember your Lord if you forget. And say, perhaps my Lord will guide me to nearer than this in guidance. Remember the cause of revelation. They asked him about this and he said, I will tell you. And he did not say, inshallah. Uh, and this was Allah Ta'ala teaching us through by means of him not saying insha'Allah. And the revelation was revealed only after some time. And this ayah is mention, mentioning this issue. So, he says, وَقُلْ عَسَىٰ أَنْ يَهْدِيَنِ رَبِّي لِأَقْرَبَ مِنْ هَذَا رَشَدًا And say, perhaps my Lord will guide me to nearer than this in guidance. Now this is something people... They hear this part of the verse and they think, well, this is telling us that we shouldn't say you're going to do something in the future except that you say insha'Allah. But they often read the next phrase and just kind of pass over it without thinking about it. What does it mean? We know that if we are going to do something, we shouldn't say I'm going to do that tomorrow without saying insha'Allah. What about the second phrase? Allah says, and say to the Prophet ﷺ, say, perhaps my Lord will guide me to nearer than this in guidance. What is that referring to? The ulama of tafsir say, this is in connection to the story of the young men. The young men, were they prophets? They weren't. They were not prophets. They were pious young men. So this means, because the story, they, he was asked about the young men. He said, I will tell you. He didn't say, inshallah. The revelation did not come immediately. It came after some time. Allah reveals the story. And in this verse, Allah is instructing him to also say to Quraysh, perhaps my Lord will guide me to nearer than this story in guidance. Meaning, Allah will reveal to him stories 
narratives of those who are far superior to the young men. The stories of the other Anbiya and the Rusul, the stories of Sayyidina Nuh, Sayyidina Musa, Ibrahim, Sayyidina Isa. What's the chapter after Surah Al-Kahf? Surah Maryam. The story of Sayyidatina Maryam and Sayyidina Isa alayhimussalam. So this is the stories of the prophets who are superior to the young men in the cave. Aqaraba min hadha rashadan. They are nearer than this in guidance because the young men have received guidance, but their guidance is nowhere like the guidance given to the Anbiya and the Rusul. That's wahi. So this is what it means. And we come to the end. Allah Ta'ala says, remember the young men were unsure about how long they stayed in the cave. Some said a day, some said part of a day. Allah says, وَلَبِثُوا فِي كَهْفِهِمْ ثَلَاثَ مِئَةِ سِنِينٍ وَازْدَادُوا تِسْعَةً قُلِ اللَّهُ أَعْلَمُ بِمَا لَبِثُوا لَهُ غَيْبُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ أَبَصِرْ بِهِ وَأَسْمِعْ مَا لَهُمْ مِنْ دُونِهِ مِنْ وَلِيٍّ وَلَا يُشْرِكُ فِي حُكْمِهِ أَحَدًا And they stayed in the cave, their cave. Allah ascribes the cave to them, their cave. For 300 years, adding nine. Say, Allah knows best how long they stayed. His is the mystery of the heavens and the earth. By Him you see and hear. They have no guardian apart from Him, and He shares His sovereignty with no one. So what's going on here? They stayed in their cave for 300 years, وَزْدَادُوا tis'a, Adding nine. What does this mean? Some say that this is describing 300 solar years and 309 lunar years. That if you calculate this, this is Roman territory after all, the Roman calendar was a solar calendar. So if you calculate it according to the solar calendar, it would have been 300 years. And if you calculate it according to the lunar calendar, it would have been 309 years. This is what many of the scholars of tafsir mention in their books. However, if you do the math, if you calculate, you actually find that if it was 300 solar years, it would give you more than 309 lunar years. Right? You notice the difference between your Gregorian birthday and your Hijra birthday? So if you're younger, if you're, tw- if you're 12 years old, according to the Gregorian calendar, you want to say, well, I'm actually 13, because you want to be older, right? Because yeah. Hijri calendar, I was born in this month, which makes me older. And when you get older, you want to stick to the Gregorian calendar. You don't want to go to the Hijri calendar, because especially as you get older, that's the difference between 65 and 67. You know, who knows? Imam al-Razi objects to this tafsir. He says, if you calculate the numbers, 300 solar years would not give you 309 lunar years. It would actually be more lunar years. So if it's not the difference between solar and lunar years, what is it referring to? Now this is where they're not 100% sure. Some of them say that it means they actually woke up after 300 years and then they fell back asleep for 9 years. Was Dadu Tis'a? They 
added nine. That's what it literally means. They remain in the cave for 300 years. Was dadu tis'a, and they added nine. So they got up after 300 years and went back to sleep for nine years. And then they got up and they had that discussion and sent the, one of them with the money. This is one view. Imam al-Alusi, one of the latter mufassirun, uh, in his Ruh al-Ma'ani, he has a really good take on this. And I, I really incline to this view because it makes sense. He says, agreeing with Imam al-Razi that 300 solar years does not give you 309 lunar years. But he doesn't accept the idea that they got up and went back to sleep. He says, no. Was dadu tis'a, they added nine. This is ambiguous. Nine what? Nine years? Why are we assuming it's years? Could it have been nine days? Nine months? Nine hours? Nine what? And because of that, Imam, Imam al-Alusi is saying it was 300 years and an ambiguous nine that's not specified. We don't know. Months, weeks, days, perhaps years, hours, we don't know. But when you look at the, what comes right after this, the next verse, what does Allah say? After mentioning 300 years, was dadu tis'a, adding nine, an ambiguous nine, Allah Ta'ala says, Say, Allah knows best how long they remained. To him belongs the unseen of the heavens and the earth. By him you see and hear. Right? So the answer is there. It's an ambiguous nine and it remains ambiguous. If it was an unambiguous nine, meaning nine years without any doubt, We'd say 309 years, but we wouldn't be able to answer why Allah says 300 add 9. Right? It's that ambiguity remains. So that's the likely interpretation. 300 years. It doesn't say whether it's lunar or solar. We don't know. And the 9 is an ambiguous 9, either years, months, days, weeks. Allah knows best, which is Allah, Allah tells us. Allah knows best how long they remained. And those finer details are not as important as the greater moral and spiritual lessons given in the story. So you see in the story, Allah tells us the important details, does not mention the superfluous details that have no bearing on the moral lessons. You know, the finer points about how they looked or the finer points about uh, how long they remain. That has no bearing on the fact that they remain for a long time as a great lesson, as a sign for us. So we'll end by mentioning something that's some, somewhat ambiguous, just for the sake of historical curiosity. Uh, the names of the Ashab al-Kahf. There's a, a number of narrations that come from Christian sources uh, and some Arabic sources about the names of the Ashab al-Kahf. And it said that the names of these young men were also within that inscription put on the wall outside of the cave. If we go to Imam al-Tabari in his Tariq al-Umam al-Muluk and his Tafsir, 
we find the Arabized version of these names. We find Sednus, Dabranus, Samunus, Butunus, and Qalus. Allah knows best. In the other uh, Christian sources, we find uh, Achilleus, Fructus, Estefanus, Sebastus, Kyriagos, Dionysius, uh, and there's different ways they're pronounced according to whether it's uh, a Syrian Orthodox Church or the Coptic Church. Um, it, it, Allah knows best, right? Uh, they appear to be Greek names in the way they're transcribed, and Allah knows best. So that ends the second segment of the, of the, the chapter, which is the story of the Ashab al-Kaf. It's a long story. There's a lot of layers within, in it. So we had to break it apart into a couple of classes. In our next session, inshallah, we'll be going into the third segment, which is uh, verses 27 through 31. There's a good chance we'll get into the fourth segment as well in the next class. And that's another story. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.